Hey, yeah. Welcome to the Color Couch, which is brought to you through Lao Post and presented by me, Vincent Taylor. I am going to share with you a conversation I had with Warren Eagles. He is a film and television colorist based in Australia, but originally from the UK. I cannot wait for you to hear it. So let's get into it. So welcome to The Colour Couch. I'm Vincent Taylor. You will have noticed that I have not done a Colour Couch podcast for a little while because there's been a few things going on in the world. Uh, <laughs> and that has led me to kind of, uh, as I'm stuck in my bunker in Brooklyn, um, have a think about the people in my life who have really contributed to my world. Uh, and Warren Eagles, who I'm speaking to at the moment, who's in Brisbane, Australia, is definitely, definitely one of those people. Welcome to the Colour Couch, Warren. Hi, Vincent. Uh, thanks for having me on. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Full transparency, which is a phrase that I've heard a lot in America. People love saying that. They'll go, full transparency, which, as far as I can tell, means I'm not going to lie to you. But full transparency, Warren is not sitting on the colour couch. No. No. And I could not fit the colour couch into my apartment, so we are cheating. Yeah, I'm, uh, I was looking forward to it because I like our trips and we... We hang out in Brooklyn and Manhattan, but I, I am on the couch. I'm on my outside couch, so there might be a bit of outside atmosphere you can pick up through the mic, maybe. Yeah, there's a bit there. I, I was going to say sorry to jump straight in, but I thought we might as well because, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time and we might as well cut to the chase. Yeah. I've got no agenda. I've got zero agenda. I just I thought let's just have a chat and, you know, especially with the way – the world is at the moment, and uh, both of our positions have changed because of what's going on. So I guess my first question, if I'm going to ask a specific question, is what are you up to? Uh, it's a little bit little bit strange, as we all know. The colour jobs that I uh, was doing have now all finished. Yeah. So the schedules were done, the jobs are done, and I am now trying to obviously look forward. The only problem we've got as colorists is that once the shoots start, then it's always a few months down the road or a few weeks probably in commercials before we're going to get that footage. Yeah. So I think our lull is going to come later. So we're going to have a later effect because, as we know, color is always the last thing that gets done, isn't it? Mm. So what I'm doing, I've, I've had a space in my place in Brisbane for about 15 years anyway. So that's not been new for me. I've had a color space and I've been doing some jobs, uh, local jobs, some remote jobs have been coming in. But I've also got my wife's in my office now. Mm -hmm. So she takes it over. And even if I go in there just to get a file, there's, there's raised eyebrows, you know, what you're doing in my space sort of thing. Um, my son's in there at the moment. He's playing a game. It's like everybody. Yeah, it's, it's all a little bit changed. Like yeah. the dog comes and hangs out there with me. I've got to tell you. So I had my first... I'm, I'm grading from home, you know, which is new for me, but I'm grading from home and I, in order to get like consistency, I had to plug in, I had to be wired. So I had to get the ethernet cable and I didn't have a long enough ethernet cable. So I, I had this 25 foot thing, which I'd stretched between the rooms and the modem was in the kid's bedroom. And so it was literally going over the door, across here, and plugged into the computer, and it was great. Had the first job lined up. Clients just chimed in, said, hey, Vincent, how you doing? I said, yeah, good. And then my little two-year-old, she's strong, she 
pushes the door open, the cable's over the top, it pulls the cable, the whole computer, the, the whole computer monitor crashes for it. I'm sort of holding it. I'm going, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mate. Who said it? Who said coloring was glamorous? Eh? Nah, yeah. That's it, man. <laughs> Everybody's going through the same challenges. So I suppose it's all the same. We've all got similar stories, but the jobs are getting done. And uh, the, the good news is, as I've been saying to people, everybody will have watched all the shows. Like, already people are going, well, I've watched everything on Netflix. Like, so The TV shows, yeah, yeah. yeah. The demand, I think, for TV stuff is going to be is good coming out the other side. So it's just a case of us jumping on that wave whenever it happens. Mm. And for people to sort of stay strong and stay through it, because, you know, I think – we got tougher times to come. It hasn't been good so far, but there's still a bit more to go. I realized that because I know you so well, I guess, uh, I kind of jumped into this and I, I didn't introduce you as such. Like, so Warren, Warren is a colorist. Warren is a, a, a phenomenal colorist and he's been in this industry for a very long time. And I should, just in case people are chiming in who don't know who you are, that's who you are. I figured you'd probably have a sexy photo and a really slick bio that goes along nah, with it. Nah, it's rough as guts, mate. Rough as guts. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. I, I want to be consistent, you know, and uh, I want to. <laughs> <laughs> you came on my first podcast, and so that was pretty rough as well. Especially asking me that about three or four pints, it didn't get any better, put it that way. No, it, got, it went downhill. I, I, I don't even know how you cut something out of that actually it but was a bit well, yeah <laughs> it was relaxed it was a relaxed yeah, it, was. it was so so anyway i uh, i grew up in london i started coloring in in soho always worked on different genres i came from a photography background and that's sort of where i started but i wanted to be a dp director so i went and got a job in film cutting rooms cutting i wasn't an editor i used to move all the kit around london i used to make editing i used to go to shepparton pinewood big studios wow. and also really small little cutting rooms that did commercials in soho and they were small rooms we'd have to go up the third floor with these big heavy machines still wanted to be a director dp and i got a job at post house how old were you then uh it was about 20 it was about 19 when i was doing the photography and the film editing then I got a job at post house at 22 mm. so took like a half a cut in wages and became a runner mm. and I used to run around so I then just worked my way up really and there was no real intention to do color but at the time a job came along one colorist left went to another shop and uh, the other colorist there is is a good buddy of mine still grading in uh, he's got a place in Venice Beach Clark Muller he said well I can train you if you fancy and I thought well well let's give that a go for a while my road to being a dp director i never really got off that color treadmill still on it <laughs> and then moved to australia 20 just over 20 years ago now wow just came for a little three-month sort of freelance contract with a young family and stayed. Yeah. Here I am. And then when you arrived in Australia, was there a plan of attack as far as colour went or? I had a job. So I came for a, well, it was a three-month job. And then they said, well, we'll extend it another three months. And then I got a staff job. And I thought it was great. I liked it. And it was a lot different from London. And the, my wife and two young two young kids at the time, they started going to kindy and things. We thought, yeah, it's good. So we stayed. And I worked in that job for a couple of years, and I got another staff job. I worked at Cunning Edge that you would know of up in Brisbane, worked with them for a couple of three years. And then I was freelance, so that was about 20, 2005, so probably 15 years of working freelance. I always say I was like the original freelancer, now there's 
lots of people running around oh, yeah. freelancing. And so that's it. I just freelance from then on, really. And I quite, I've always enjoyed that because I was never the person that sat in the one room and used the same bit of software and just, I just, after a while, I was just lacking inspiration in that same four walls, that same journey. And that's, you can get, you can earn more money that way, obviously, because you can really build your client base. But it just wasn't for me because I like jumping from commercials to dramas to features, music videos, learn different bits of software. So I was probably never going to get rich, but in my eyes, it's been more interesting because I've always bounced around. Yeah. So it's been fun. It's interesting that thing about freelance because I remember when I, and the, the terminology changes around the world, but I was I was retrenched from my color job in Melbourne. And you're talking about being the first freelance colorist. I think, as far as I know, I was the first freelance colorist in Melbourne for about 18 months. So I jumped into that world. I'd been on DaVinci 2K. I was on Luster. I was on Baselight. And all of a sudden, I'm going, oh, my God, what do I do? I, you know, because Resolve was just uh, just sort of launching as a kind of a achievable thing to have on your own. And I had no idea, of course. Actually, it, it's on a list of things I have no idea of. But um, uh, and then I reached out to you because you were in Melbourne. I said, Warren, help, help, help. And and I think it was it, it was either on the cusp of or the FX uh, PhD stuff. And, and you know, but I I hadn't seen the online learning. But anyway, you you were doing a job in Melbourne. I came yeah. in late at night. And That's he it. said, all right, I'll, I'll talk you through it. And da, da, da. And because of the way my brain works and because I go, oh, I, I'm not going to remember it. So I remember getting my phone and going, oh, look, I'll just, re- I'll just record what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously the next day I played that bag and went, oh, that makes no sense at all. But um, what a beautiful segue into teaching. Yeah, that, that was a fun, that was a fun time, but. In a way that that was hats off to you for sort of reaching out and say, look, if you've got time, as I always say, there's no harm in asking. Like, you know, you've reached out. I help you with a few things. And I think uh, color people especially are very open with that of yeah. sharing of things. And, yeah, I've spare a couple of hours off. Come in. I'll show you this or a new thing. And next time I'm in New York, you can show me some Baselight stuff and that will benefit me. Yeah. So I think it all goes around, comes around sort of thing. So You know the biggest thing I got from that time with you is you just made it a little less scary. Like, because I was feeling so overwhelmed, but you just kind of, you just brought it down and I just went, great. Okay, cool. I can, I can approach this now, you know. As I like to say to a lot of people is that you already know the hard bit. The hard bit is the coloring, the composition, how to build a grade, when to build. That's the same with any software. And that's through your photography as well. It's through you do what you do with your stills. The easy bit is the software, but at the time it seems daunting because you've obviously got to get up to speed a bit quickly. You've got clients in the room. But and really, that's the easy bit. It's the other bit that's Mm. difficult. And it's hard, sometimes hard getting that across to people. Uh, that it's a long journey. Do you remember when you were starting out when you had not the first, but, but one of your first kind of client attended things where the adrenaline's going and, you know, do you remember that? Oh, yeah, I did. Uh, I started coloring. It was all film. I was doing a music video on 16 mil. Mm-hmm. I did a Hall and Oates video. Remember them? No way. Yeah. Yeah, black and white one. It's still around on YouTube somewhere. And uh, it was great. That was the second one 
the first one I did for this guy, this was good because this guy was on a bit of a journey and he did this little indie music video, 16 mil. I colored that. Obviously, you're really nervous. First time you do anything, you know, you've, you're waiting there, you're trying to prepare. Sometimes you don't have the film early. And that went pretty well. So I got this Hall & Oates one, so that was good. I then subsequently did some music videos for this director. That was great. But really, yeah, the beginning. But it's still the same now if I do a job now mm. and if it's someone. And I think if you don't feel that, if you don't get up a little bit, then you're, you're lost as a person because you've got to be interested, engaged with it. Yeah. And that's what makes it a bit interesting. And that's what keeps you on your toes. And I find as a freelancer – probably a little bit better than when I had the staff job because in the staff job, it's hard to keep upbeat all the time, every day. Freelancing, a bit more interesting because it's not all the time. It's such an interesting point, that thing about that, the select few times I've tried to teach someone or show someone some stuff and it's almost like this third person in the room and I can I can see myself talking to them going, oh my gosh, I, I sound like I know what I'm talking about and I, I sound so confident and da 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 And obviously that's based on experience, but you're right. You know, you go into a session and you've still got that kind of, okay, I've got to get this right, I've got to make it look good and da 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 and, and you do, you know what you're doing. Yeah. But there's always that kind of thing, isn't there? Oh, there is. And uh, uh, like we can do it now, like we can colour and tell stories and talk about the weather and <laughs> talk about whatever we talk about, sports. and. But when you start, you've got your head down. All you're thinking about is looking at scopes. I've got to get this right. And someone talks to you and you don't know whether you should stop and talk to them or turn around. Then you're looking at the clock and they're thinking, can't this guy finish his show? And it's, there's a lot of stuff going on when you start out. And uh, it's a funny time. I remember, um, you know, one of the early things that a client was asking me to do, I can't remember the specific thing, but they were asking me to do something. I went, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll try and do that. And and I bent over backwards to try and make this thing happen, you know. And I, I guess I got through or whatever, you know. They, they said, yeah, that's great. And it's interesting what experience gives you, you know, because sometimes now when you're more experienced and someone asks you to do something, you go, yeah, you know what? It just wasn't shot that way. I'll try, but I'm just giving you a heads up. It, it's probably not going to get there, you know. Whereas when you're a little bit greener, you'll go, "Oh, okay," you know, and you'll 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 try your best. Yes, yeah. Oh, we get that now too with these more sort of consumer cameras. These sometimes you get phone shots and lesser quality shots thrown in as B and C cams and. Obviously, yeah, we can do great things to try and match them, but they're never going to be quite as good. And I always think it's worth pointing out to producers and sometimes directors that the reason that it doesn't look that way is because, you know, it's a much lesser camera. And maybe next time it's worth a little bit more budget, get a slightly better quality B camera, and the end result will be better. And sometimes mm. we do assume that people do know a lot and they come into Color Bay and they don't always know what can be done and what you can achieve or why you cannot achieve something because it's an 8 bit image or you're just working off an H264 file. So. I'm always there to try and explain to people if they're interested, mm. uh, no matter how experienced they are, because sometimes people have, uh, and even this way with DPs, it's been a bit, a bit of a move into digital over the last 10 years. So some of them are really keen to embrace it and some are not. Uh, the ones that are here to learn, I'm always keen to do tests. Sorry, out. Uh, keen to embrace, what do you mean? 
Um, they're always keen to embrace the new digital technology from oh, film. So obviously some DPs will – we've got the same with HDR now, moving yeah. into HDR. Some are right at the, the cutting edge side of that to move into shooting HDR, and some are going, well, I've sort of shot it as I have all the time. I'm not really – don't need to change. It's going to be much the same. But it's a challenging time, and uh, it's a fun time, I think, uh, what we're sort of going through at the moment. Mm. You obviously, you know, you, you've got your career as, as a colorist, as a very well-known colorist, but then you've also got a career as a teacher, like your, your, your instruction for color. How did that come about? That really came around, I would say, it was when I was in London for a can of Australia, it was late 90s. And I was started on a Da Vinci, and I got a call. Could I go to Athens and do three days teaching? I was working freelance in between one of my staff jobs there, and I thought, well, I've not been to Greece, I've not been to Athens. Yeah, well, I'd like to do that. <laughs> I get on the plane, go to this, this laboratory, and the guy was morphing out of film grading and moving into doing digital dailies. And I spent three days with this guy, and it was. It was good. And then they said, that seemed to go well. They go, would you like to do a trade show for Da Vinci? Huh. I thought, yeah, i like to do a trade show. That was good. And then I also used to work and demonstrate telecines for uh, Ranks Intel, uh, Thompson as it was then. They had the Spirit and ITK around. They had a machine as well. So I enjoyed it because to me, all it was was just talking to people. It's like us. A colorist would come and sit with me and we would just talk. Mm. We'd have good fun. I'd find out what they were doing. I would show them some things. I would never bamboozle them with it because I know whenever you sat down with something, you had to make it appear as easy as possible to get people comfortable. Yeah, that's true. If you bamboozle them with all the tricksy stuff, they would walk away from your demo going, wow, that is so hard. I'm never going to be able to learn that probably. That is so spot on. That's how I did it, and I enjoyed it. And it was good traveling, and hey, I needed to subsidize my income as a freelance grader. So if I did some freelance training, that's how it came around. But the ICA, the International Colorists Academy, which is now 10 years old as well, that just came out the fact that I was starting to do a bit more of this training and Kevin Shaw in London, he was doing a bit more in between our colouring and we just decided to form a sort of a club, if you like, and build a website and that was um, 09 we started the ICA. And then are you finding, I mean, these so much has changed over the last 10 years, but are you finding these days, like what backgrounds are people coming from when they're joining up with these classes to learn about colour? So you've got a, probably a mixture of editors because you think if you're editing, uh, I'm thinking more of a, we're talking about a, a mid-level show, a doco. We're not talking about high-end things, obviously, but if you're, if you're cutting a program and a producer says, oh, you know, do you know any colourists? I've got two days' money to colour this. Now, if you think, well, I wouldn't mind a bit of this colour action, got all the media on my machine, I'm sitting here. So they're the sort of people that go, well, I think I could colour this. They're taking a class. You've got the DP who definitely doesn't want to colour but wants to know more about the terms. Talk about the colour spaces, the dynamic ranges, how can a DP converse with a colorist and a VFX supervisor. You've got the photographer. So the photographer is shooting a stills campaign. 
and someone taps them on the shoulder maybe from the agency, oh, we'd like to do a little online Instagram. Do you want to do that? Of course they'd like to do that, but they haven't shot as much moving stuff and they certainly haven't colored it like they would in Lightroom or Photoshop. So they're keen. So that's another area. Yeah. So they're the three main I'm probably seeing. And then obviously in the more advanced classes, you're getting more colorists who just want to take themselves up a little bit more than where they are. Oh, so that's interesting. So you're, you're, you're doing classes at different tiers? Yes, yeah. Uh, I'm finding that the there's still value in the the fundamentals class because though there's there's lots and lots of free stuff out there. There's heaps of stuff on YouTube. And if you really didn't want to pay for anything and you could sift through you could find enough to certainly get going, but there's still value in enough people that say, no, I want to go and sit in a classroom for two days and no distractions, and I'm going to get a really good start with this software. Now, obviously, that's blown out the window the last two months, but we're going to start <laughs> doing this virtually like we're doing this now. Yeah. I can see your screen. You can see mine. So we're going to carry on doing the same thing, but just do it online. But also, as you get to more of an advanced class or a looks class, they're a lot more of chatting about a certain grade and why it was colored that way and yeah. why we could do it this way, why we could do it that way. Then I'll set the class or the students a bit of a challenge and you'll go off and have half an hour and then we'll review as a group and talk about it. Why did you do it that way? That sh- These two shots don't quite match. Is there a reason for that? Or So that's, I like those classes as well. Yeah. Earlier on, we were chatting when you when, when I was talking about coming to get you to give me a heads up on <laughs> how to grade and resolve. And you said you differentiated between that thing. Look, if someone knows how to grade, then it's they know how to grade. And then you're teaching them the tool set. Now, in the last few months, I've gone back to Baselight after a, a very long time. It's been, I think it's been 10 years since I've used it. So it's been a whole learning curve for me again to get back into that and you're right. Sure enough, I know how to grade, but I've got to make the tool do what I want it to do. Now, in the classes that you're teaching, obviously this, I'm, I'm saying obviously, but correct me if I'm wrong, this is usually resolving, revolving, sorry, around resolve. But is there also broad conversations about color in general, or does it have to be intertwined with the tool set as well? No, there's obviously more interest in resolve because it's the free software, but it's also a good tool just to teach general color on. Looking at waveforms, scopes, looking at log images, Rec 709 images, make the scopes very big on the screen and just talk about how contrast works and saturation works. So I like to say that the classes are very general. So if you were using any software, you could take that knowledge and use it in the software you're using. Mm. And I think I like to say, you know, it's as much about the art as it is about the app is one of my old well-worn sayings. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd like to get someone to teach uh, a base light in the eyes. And we get a lot of people asking. It's all about finding the right teacher, and it's very yeah. difficult to find someone who is still a colorist but also has likes teaching and is prepared to to do some of that as well. So that would be good. That's something we're looking into. Same with Mystica as well. Mystica is getting a bit, oh, yeah. of, bit ahead of steam with their new version, and we're talking to a few people about – this is going to be easier now we're doing these virtual classes because hmm. obviously for the ICA, a big part of our expense and a gamble, if you like, is going to these cities – 
paying all our expenses and hoping we get the people in the class. Now, if we can do things virtually, there's that bit, that bit of gambles taken out of it. Do you think, you know, given the current global situation with the with the pandemic, do you think that that teaching is now going to change? I think uh, a lot of things will change. I think we will be a lot more used to chatting and talking and learning like we are now, uh, one-on-one or myself and classrooms of maybe six people all with their own machines. But I think it will go around in a circle a bit and people will come out and go, I just want to interact more with another human and, and talk to someone in the break and walk to their computer and look at what they're doing because a lot of the time, the real gems in a training class is when you go to the pub afterwards yeah. and you sit there and the stories start to come out. And why did you do that? And why did that client do that? Now, obviously, that's not happening in an online session. You are not really meeting that person and starting off an, a networking group and you know, how we got together and met and the other people we know in Australia, all the guys we know in, in New York. It's going to be hard if you're only their online friend. So I think it will go around. It will come back in time, like anything. It's interesting, isn't it, that, like the different levels, this is getting more into psychology, but the different levels of what being social is. You know, it, it, it's like, yeah, you can have a, like you and I having a conversation or you can you can do a class and you can interact, but you're right, there's something about that being there with somebody and uh, and having the interaction and, and what conversations come out and what you learn from that that is invaluable. And I think it was getting bad, wasn't it, before the pandemic. We are all too guilty of texting or using a little message when we could easily pick up the phone. And this is the real thing I find with clients as well, is that I always will try and give them a ring afterwards, right? Go, hello, I'm just ringing in. How was the job? How was the grade? Everything okay? Anything you need me to do? Now, that is easy to do. People either will send an email or they won't send anything, and they might not hear anything, and they might not work with that director again because maybe something wasn't quite right and you never know why that might be but if you ring they might go oh yeah it was just a couple of shots i wasn't and you could go i'll I'll redo them i'll send them to you and they'll go oh yeah that'll be good because maybe the job's gone out but i'd like to then flick that onto my reel and always worth a phone call and just to follow up because our clients are gold aren't they especially at this time well we're going to come out of this thing i I think it's going to be busy, but it's going to be competitive, you know, because people are going to be hungry. And just go that little bit edge after a little bit more after the job to to make sure everything's okay and just make sure you've done everything you could, I suppose, to look after your clients. What's your viewpoint on a remote grade as opposed to an in-person grade? And and by remote, I don't even necessarily mean a real-time grade uh, remote, but, uh, you know, like you're not in the same room as your client. What are the pros and cons of that? The, the hardest part is very hard. If you don't actually know that person, you've not met them or you've not worked with them before. Because you know as well as I do, if you've worked with someone over a few jobs, you get to know what they like, what sort of things they don't like, and you know them as a person. You've chatted to them, you've met them. That remote session is is reasonably easy or smooth. If you're coming in cold, 
and you're trying to work with someone that's very difficult. Very, I think anyway. I don't really enjoy that situation. And but you know as well as I do, you can be sitting with someone, you're looking at them, you got eye contact with them. You say to them, "You like that," and they go, "Yeah." You can tend, you can sense they don't like it, and you go, "Yeah, okay. Well, it's all right, isn't it? Well, let's try this. Oh, let's try. I'll give you two other alternates." On they go, "Yeah, yeah. That would be good. Yeah." Mm. And you can sense those things in the room, even if they said they liked it. You know, they probably don't. So it's very hard to get that from the end of a telephone line, or when they're sending it back, or frame IO, or however. So. Uh, that's my take on it. But we're going to see more of it. It's obvious that this COVID-19 is going to drive us in more, more remote working, more collaboration with people in different parts. And to be honest, I've sort of been doing that for, for a couple of years here in Brisbane anyway. Editor in one place, sound in one place. Director will drive around with a hard drive, visiting people, getting different standards of coffee as he or she goes to each different place. <laughs> My coffee's not so good. And I tend to sort of say, well, you know, if I go and make you the coffee, you know, I'm going to stop grading for 10 or so minutes. Might not be the best. They normally go, Warren, was I? I'll just pop out. I'll get the coffees. You carry on doing your stuff. You know how to do it. They're looking at my old coffee machine. <laughs> the producer's looking at their watch going, crikey, if he gets up to make the coffee, that's going to be 10 minutes. We're not going to get any work done. <laughs> With that topic of um, the approval process, I mean, the approval process of a grade, you know, I've seen change so, as you will have, uh, so drastically over the last, pick a number, I, I'm going to say five years, but you know, where originally everyone was in that room, everyone was looking at that same monitor, everyone was talking about that image as it happened. And now, as the years have gone on, more and more and more, look, such and such can't make it to the grade. We're going to have to send them some stills. We're going to have to do. I'm interested, again, we're forced into that situation now, but that was happening more and more anyway. Uh, more, yeah, more and more. And I, I don't think we're going to get away with that. And one of the problems I think we have is when the key people are in the room, say, well, let's say three people, director, DP, maybe agency, client, say three, the decision was made. And when they walked out of the room, that was how it was. Now you can email or frame IO those three people, but then they can share it with other people. And not necessarily the people that should have an opinion, but they do. And then their opinion would influence the other person, and that puts a bit of doubt in their mind. And so then you start this little snowball effect, of, which can, uh, can unravel back to the edit. And are there any alternate takes for that? Is there any reason why we use that one? So I think that's one of the reasons is so many people now are looking at it and having an opinion on it. Uh, which we can obviously do that, and that is good. But from us, it's difficult because it then comes down to, are we billing for what we're doing here? And there is always, uh, we're always happy to make changes and revise things in the cold light of day of maybe the next day. But there's a sort of fairness in how much should be billed and how much do we we do. So mm. it's a slightly tricky one, and we sort of treat every client. I thought every client's different, but I think most of them are pretty reasonable in the amount of changes mm. and the amount of time that we have for a job. From a coldly technical point of view, of course, there's that thing about how are they seeing that image when they're if they're not in the room. Yeah. What are they looking at that on? What environment are they looking at that? Exactly, in? it's the it's the big question of the day, isn't it? I I have an iMac Pro. 
And most people, we're talking more in advertising, even long form, will have some sort of normally a Mac or an iPad. And what I suggest is you have the brightness set in the middle. You don't have any tricksy true tone or any of these night views. Don't go in there and try and calibrate the thing so it's out of the box. Mm -hmm. I have a, a, a Flanders OLED. I've got an ISO 32 4K, and it looks pretty good. Now, what I will often do, I will often quickly flick a few stills to my on my Pro in the session, my iPad Pro, and just show it to the client. And they'll go, oh, that looks pretty good, doesn't it? Just to prove to them in my room, in the environment, and they're looking at both, looks good, yeah? So when they then get back to their office and they're viewing it, and this is where sometimes the problem comes in and the viewing environment is very different and the angle of your screen, lots of different ways. A lot of variables. Variables in there, but at least then they can go, well, it did look right in his room there. It looked very similar, same technology, same clips, same grade. Um, the other thing I do, I will quite often just put like a little two second of color bars or a bit of gray on the beginning of the clip. All that does, I don't expect anyone to adjust, but all it does, it makes people think, ah, color bars, right, let's try and think about where we're viewing this shot. Have I got my laptop right? Is my brightness in the middle? Is my screen at the right? Right, let's watch it, and then let's give some feedback based on me having it correct my end. Um, That's basically what I do, and I'm confident in my monitors. That's the other important thing. We know we're working in a calibrated environment. We have the best display, no matter where it could go, PC, Mac, Vimeo, YouTube, wherever, but we are happy and we are confident, and that's that's an important thing as well. That last point is, is is so important because you're relying on two things there. Even if it is a remote grade, you're relying on the fact that the colorist that you're working with has got the equipment necessary to achieve what needs to be achieved, and the colorist. Yeah, that that's the person. That you are, you know, it, all this technology is amazing, but at the end of the day, you've got the person there going, you know what, it's not, it, it, it looks right, it is right. Yeah, you know? yeah, because there's lots of different, uh, obviously, technologies, different displays, but at some point, you've got to go, right, this is going to be right here. And it may go slightly different on one display and slightly different the other way. But mm. in the end, it's going to be better on a bigger percentage of different displays wherever you're going to. The other argument is you may have some, you may have an editor that's just working on a show on their cutting it or coloring it on their GUI, and it's never going to get a color grade. And they could then render that out, and it could go to air, and it's never been looked at anywhere. So yeah. some people are doing that, and it's not been questioned. I had one person <laughs> rang me and said, "Oh, I'm trying to color this show. Uh, it's sort of going okay." and I'm just colouring it on my GUI of my edit on an Avid, I think. I'll send you a little link, but I want you to explain what you can do to this. Hmm. And I just went back and had a quick look and I said, well, I'm not going to make it look any worse. (laughs) And they were like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, certain things, when I get it on my monitor that you obviously can't see on yours, I'm looking at defects and banding and things that I can fix up that you can't see and make it match better. And I pointed out where shots were not matching. And the guy went, oh, I can see that now when you pointed why that doesn't cut. He said, I thought 
I thought maybe it was the editing, but I can see now it's the color. And that's why it wasn't working for me. So once I'd explained those things, this guy was a do-it-all self-person, was happy to pay out the money for a grade. But it's a very subjective thing that we do, isn't it? And some people cannot see the value until you point out why a shot doesn't match or doesn't cut. They go... Oh, yeah, I'd never really seen why that – there's something about that I didn't like, and now they know it doesn't match in the in the color or the contrast. That's why they didn't like it. One of the skills of a colorist is that of a diplomat, but not entirely a diplomat, like not just saying stuff to make people feel better, but it's it's delivering the information in a way that is not, a, you know, not aggressive or not challenging. You know, but, you know, we're, at the end of the day, we want them to be happy. Of course we do. That's We're doing it for, the you know, the client. But what have you learned over the years about, you know, working with clients in that respect, like the psychology, the diplomacy? It's uh, a little bit of, of balance to, you know, you've got to be able to talk in the room and knowing when to stop and have a chat and generally keep the this, this, this session flowing, I think. Um, there's a mixture of that, talking about things they've been doing, things that are coming up, and then the the important follow-up, like I said afterwards, the follow-up before it is all important. People often went to uh, post houses because they had a, a good vibe to them and they had a good time, and obviously they were looked after, and it was the all-round experience, wasn't it? It wasn't maybe just the experience with the colorist, but the, the, the whole re- – all-round experience and how a director could take their clients into that environment. And, yeah, it was a cool place. We had a good time and the job looked really good. So it was a package. Hmm. Um, I try and do that and try and treat every job slightly different, which I think you do when you're a freelancer. Every job is uh, potentially your last. <laughs> hmm. I feel I need to be a bit more upbeat. That, that was a bit doom and gloom, wasn't it? Well, the way it could be, could be my last. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> For a few months, God. anyway. Here's the thing, and it's a question, I'm, you know, after you've been doing it for a number of years, you're doing as a colorist for a number of years, or, or, or any kind of artistic uh, endeavor, how do you stay inspired? What what makes you keep coming back? That That's a, that's a good question. And um, I think new, new technologies, new cameras – a software changing as well, which has allowed you to use some of these new features. Because if you go through the things that we could do, and um, we started coloring, you and I started coloring on film, it was pretty limited to the things you can do. And I'm a few years in front of you. You did a commercial, it came off a graded print. So it was already graded in the lab. We could move it a few points of density, lighter, brighter. We could make little adjustments, but not much. It basically was graded. We will basically just transfer people who put it on a tape so it could go to air. Now, compared to what we can do, we can reasonably within time change nearly everything. It's a big change, but I embrace that. I like working with new cameras. I like working with the newer software, the new tools, using raw images. And now we got this push into HDR, which is another big learning curve as well for people. So as long as I think you keep learning, that keeps you sharp as well. So that sort of keeps me. I've got this job coming up and I'm going to be doing some HDR testing. That's going to inspire me. For the, for the next few years, I think, as certainly long form, we're going to look more for HDR finishing. Is there any technique or any anything you do f- to stop becoming comfortable 
And by that, I mean, I know there's been a couple of times where I've gone through some months of going, I kind of did that on the last grade. I kind of did that already, you know, and, and it's pretty much that voice in my head, which makes me go, come on, come on. Yeah, and the, and the good thing is that the, the client never knows that. That's what you're thinking. And you've got to treat every job as if it's a new job. And even if they're existing clients, you have to go in there as if it's like the first time you work with them. And never drop the ball in offering looks. All that a client asks for is that you've explored every way to potentially color their show and never Mm -hmm. sort of go, well, I think this is how it's going to be. Always explore because they never want to leave your room thinking, oh, we didn't really try that. I did think, I really hoped he tried that slightly desat look there and it didn't, I didn't really want to ask and I know he had limited time. But if you try these things and then you're confident in yourself, yep, we tried all these funky looks, but actually if we just balance it out, it looks really natural and looks really good, then you know you've investigated all your options. And that is really important. Mm. You know, I do find sometimes people just, they're trying to get something that is unachievable. It wasn't shot that way. And so until you can get there and say, well, look, it actually not re- we can't really achieve the look from this movie that you're showing me in this quick time because it's not really shot that way. But what we can do, we can do this for you, which is like that. And that's about bringing them in and, and showing them the different ways that you can do it and why, may, why maybe you cannot do it that way. You know, so that's important as well. You know, we all want to get the best for each individual show, don't we, or program. Mm. Uh, it's not always obtainable, but there's how you convey that to the clients and how you get around these little problems. It's all experience, I think, isn't it? And with experience, you get confidence. You get confidence to say that. Yeah, that's true. Are you still uh, making your podcast? Uh, well, my podcast is definitely I've got to go and sit with a person, which <laughs> I, I decided not to do this Skype thing. So, yeah, it's on hold. The last one went out, which was one I had recorded before COVID-19. So I'm not sure when the next one will be. I'm looking for somebody in Australia because then I can drive there and talk to them. And it's all about sitting there looking at the river or in the pub looking at the bar or, you know. So so do I get to have a return visit on your podcast? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Round two. I'm, Round I'm not two. sure where you are on the actual uh, – the, the ladder of listens, Vince. You were right at the beginning. And if anyone wants yeah. to catch it and hear Vincent talk about how he, he graded a job in, in Shanghai when all the clients were looking at his grade on an iPad in the kitchen, it's quite an interesting story. <laughs> Warren, thank you so much for making time to come on the Colour Couch in a virtual fashion. And, um, uh, yeah, as always, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Well, mate, well, love to the family and uh, everyone stay safe out there, yeah? Look after all your rallies and your friends and yeah. pick up the phone every now and then and just check in and everyone's doing okay. And uh, we're going to come through the other side and it's, it's going to be good. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Vince. See you, buddy. Thanks for listening into The Colour Couch. A very special thank you to my executive producer, Amelia Chapelle, and also to Chubby Tycoon for the music. Uh, everybody, please stay safe, and um, I will see you for episode four. See ya.